Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is the director of Westminster Institute, a former director of the Voice of America. Robert Riley has taught at the National Defense University and has served in the White House in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Mr. Riley is a member of the board of the Middle East Media Research Institute. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, and National Review, among many other publications. His most recent book, a revised and expanded version of his 2002 work, Surprised by Beauty, was published in April of this year, and we do have copies in the back. We're delighted to have him back again at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Robert Riley. We're doing something a little different tonight. Well, actually, two very different things. First of all, I want to thank the pastor for hosting us here tonight. He claims to have heard me speak somewhere before, which speaks to his tremendous courage in allowing me to speak here. <laughs> Can't imagine why you must have forgotten what I said. The second thing is that for those of you who have heard me speak uh, to the ICC before, know that I am not the bearer of glad tidings, right? The last talk was the metaphysics of the bathroom. Not too cheery. And I'm, I'm a gloomy Irishman. I think everything's going to hell, and that's what I usually talk about. But it's not. And tonight I have tremendous good news about the renaissance that is taking place in classical music, particularly in the United States and also in Great Britain. But before we can appreciate that recovery of modern music, we have to know about its loss and what was lost and why. And how was music regarded in the Western world from its inception, at least from the early, earliest recorded account of what music is as understood, for instance, in ancient Greece. We will briefly go over that, as well as the conception of reality that the ancient Greeks held that other people in the West, the classical composers had, because you may be sure that their music was a reflection of their conception of reality. So I talked about the metaphysics of the bathroom. This is, we're talking about the metaphysics of music. I've had conversations with many composers. And the interesting thing about these conversations is they're, they're not technical. They don't talk about the harmonic changes in their music or 
how they write fugues, they talk about how they perceive reality and how that perception is then echoed in their music. Because if the world is this way, then I will write this kind of music reflecting that. But if the world is actually an entirely different way, that will change the music I write as well. And so we will see as we go through this this evening that the sounds in music or what was even considered to be music changed radically when the conception of reality changed radically. And we'll take you through what some composers said in this respect. And then Andy is going to play clips as we go along. I selected 12 clips from various composers just to give you a little flavor of what I'm talking about in terms of how it sounds. And the first ones are really going to hurt. <laughs> Andy let me know that his wife was distressed when he was transferring these to whatever IT device, iPod, I don't, yeah, somehow he's going to get the music to play on the speaker here so you can hear what I'm talking about. But the great news is the attempted suicide of Western music failed. No thanks to Arnold Schoenberg, who was the sort of Jack Kevorkian of Western classical music in the 20th century, who set it on a path of disintegration. So you'll get to hear something he wrote. Um, and you'll hear other, you'll hear how music degenerated into sheer noise. But if you will tolerate this, you will also then get to hear the sounds of the recovery. What I really ought to do is just have the, the, the room sealed and play for you, say, my 3,000 favorite CDs of 20th century and contemporary music. Andy, we have enough food for that? Forget the food. Do we have enough wine? Unfortunately, we don't. You'll have to listen to, to me talk about much of what um, we need to cover. Now, I do have to share with you what one German composer said, which I think is so delicious. Because many of the composers I know lived through the nightmare of the ugliness of a great deal of 20th century music, and they suffered not only because the music was ugly, but because the beautiful music they were writing wasn't performed. Because the orthodoxy uh, in the music world, meaning the academy, the commissioning system, getting your music played by an orchestra or a string quartet, that was all controlled by the forces of noise. So they were suppressed and they had to suffer through this. So German composer Klaus Ogerman when I look back at the German mecca of the avant-garde, where they've been playing modern music since 1923-24, they've premiered 2,000 compositions there, of which none has left any mark. It's as if you had a factory producing things that weren't working. <laughs> Unquote. And you kept producing them. So we're going to find out how that happened, why that happened. But first we go back to um, the dawn. 
as far as we're able to discern it, most particularly uh, Pythagoras and say around the 5th century BC. Pythagoras performed an experiment. He thought number was the key to the universe. And he made this monochord. He stretched a, a string, of course, two fixed points, and he plucked it, made a sound. Then he had a fret or a strut, and he put it halfway over that stretched cord, and he plucked one side of it, and it made another sound that was completely consonant with the first sound he had made. And this struck him. Why is it that this sounds completely harmonious with the first one? The reason was because it was actually the same note, one pitch higher. Pythagoras had discovered the octave. Now, note carefully, I say, I didn't say Pythagoras created the octave. He discovered it. He discovered the properties inherent in the world of sound itself. So he continued with some experiments. And of course, the octave ratio is two to one. Then he uh, plucked the string two thirds of its original length, producing a perfect fifth, then two thirds of its length, uh, producing a perfect fifth in a th ratio of three to two. Now why this, this impressed him because it meant to him that the world was comprehensible. Not only could it be understood through number, but that these exact, exact whole number ratios indicated a rational order in hearing in the world and thus a rational intelligence behind the world. So these ratios in music meant that the world was intelligible and that it was intelligible as music, that music itself was the ordering principle of the world. Have you ever heard that before? Does that strike you? It's, it's extremely striking, isn't it? Because of the tremendous influence Pythagoras had. Now, Pythagoras speculated that this plucked music, this consonant harmonious music, also was present in singing. And he then speculated that the harmony in the voice and in the instruments was but a reflection of a higher harmony, a music of the sphere and that the whole universe was ordered musically, and that the planets in their rotations produced tones, and that together these different tones sounded harmoniously to create this music of the spheres. And this idea of the music of the spheres echoed down the centuries in the Western world and formed the conception and the aim of music for many, many centuries. Indeed, I would say, even into the 19th century and into parts of the 20th century, this idea of a harmony of the spheres. 
and that we are to imitate this harmony of the spheres in our singing and playing. And what's more, the third part of this harmony is in our own souls. So we must achieve this harmonious order within ourselves, reflected in the music we make, which itself then reflects this harmony of the heavens, so that altogether everything is harmonious, as music is the ordering principle of creation. The music of the spheres. As Aristotle explained in the Metaphysics, quote, the Pythagoreans supposed the elements of numbers to be the elements of all things and the whole heaven to be a musical scale and a number, unquote. Of course, they, they meant this literally at that time. Music was number made audible. Music was man's participation in the harmony of the universe. Now this discovery was fraught with ethical significance. I don't know how often you may have thought of music as moral or immoral, but you may be sure that from the inception of philosophic thinking in the Western world, it was always tied to and considered as part of morality. Listen for instance, to Plato, who is simply following Pythagoras. Plato said, quote, rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul on which they mightily fasten, imparting grace and making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful, unquote. And then in the Republic, uh, Plato used as his musical authority, Damon of Athens. Damon of Athens having said that he would rather control the modes of music in a city than its laws, because the modes of music would have more power in forming the characters of the citizens than even the laws would have. That's how powerful music is. Now, just as music produces or should produce harmony, it can produce disharmony, just as it can produce consonance, if it's harmonious, it can produce dissonance. Just as it can enhance harmony in the soul, <clears throat> it can also act against that harmony, depending on, of course, the kind of music it is. But in each case, be sure it is tied to morality. So. As I say, this runs through um, Western music. I just want to give you a couple of the little examples of it. Cicero, first century BC, in uh, De Republica, he writes in Scipio's dream here. Scipio Africanus asks, quote, what is that great and pleasing sound? The answer? That is the concord of tones, separated by unequal but nevertheless carefully proportional intervals caused by the rapid motion of the spheres themselves. Skilled men imitating this harmony on stringed instruments and in singing have gained for themselves a return to this region 
To what region? Heavenly region. As have those who have cultivated their exceptional abilities to search for divine truths, unquote. In other words, who are those searching for these divine truths? He's talking about the philosophers. So music, though it's very different from philosophy, has as its aim the same goal, the attainment of this heavenly sphere of the divine. And therefore we come, we have in here a preview of what becomes explicit in Christianity, that the goal of art, and indeed of music is the most immaterial art, is to make the transcendent perceptible. I see Roger shaking his head because he is a musician and he knows what I'm talking about. What does great music, the greatest classical music do? It makes the transcendent perceptible. In other words, you will experience the transcendent through it, in it. It will shake you to the bottom of your feet and change you as only great art, great music can do. Now, as happened with the advent of Christianity, which baptized Greek philosophy, so too did it baptize this conception of music. And here we're going to hear from St. Clement of Alexandria in the second century. Using Old Testament imagery from the Psalms, St. Clement said there is a new song superior to the pagan Orphic myths. And here's what he says. This, this new song is Christ himself, Logos. By the way, the Greek word, Pythagoras and the others who are talking about the ratios of these intervals in the octave, you know what the, the word ratio is in Greek. It's logos, ratio, reason, logos, reason. You see why Pythagoras thought these, these ratios, these numerical ratios in the intervals of the octave reflected logos and order in the user. There was a logos behind it, reason. Okay, so we're talking about, St. Clement is talking about Christ, logos. It is this new song that composed the entire creation into melodious order and tuned into concert the discord of the elements that the whole universe may be in harmony with it. It is Christ who arranged in harmonious order this great world, yes, and the little world of man, body and soul together, and on this many-voiced instrument, he makes music to God and sings to the accompaniment of the human instrument. Isn't that lovely? So Christ is the composer. He is the new song. So Cicero had spoken of this return to the divine region, but of course in... in the ancient uh, classical philosophy, there was nothing such as a transcendent. Everything was within the universe, nothing outside of it. Now with Christianity, this goal, this divine region becomes something which transcends it 
because God is transcendent. And so the, the, now we know that the aim is to make that transcendent perceptible. A couple of other quick ones here from the fifth century. Uh, the secretary to Theroderic, the Ostrogoth king, echoed the same teaching. He taught that, quote, listen to this. Music indeed is the knowledge of apt modulation. If we live virtuously, we are constantly proved to be under its discipline. But when we sin, we are without music. The heavens and the earth and indeed all things in them which are directed by a higher power share in the discipline of music. For Pythagoras attests that this universe was founded by and can be governed by music, unquote. Boethius, one of the great, great Christian philosophers, Consolation of Philosophy, the great work he wrote in, in prison before Theodoric had him executed. Let me just give you a quick statement of his. He wrote the principles of music in the early 6th century. How influential was this book? It was used at Oxford till 1856. Boy, I wish I had the rights to that book. That would have been <laughs> terrific. But that's how influential the principles of music was. So, Boethius, music is related not only to speculation, but to morality as well. For nothing is more consistent with human nature than to be soothed by sweet modes and disturbed by their opposites. Thus we can begin to understand the apt doctrine of Plato, which holds that the whole of the universe is united by a musical concord. Now, this again idea uh, perdured throughout the centuries. I, I'm writing a book right now on the American founding. So I'm coming across some delicious material. Here is a thesis written by a student at a colonial college in 1797. Quote, if from the sun to each of the planets musical chords were stretched by weights in ratio to the quadrate distances, the symphonic chords would be sounded, and thence comes the basis of the doctrine of Pythagoras on the harmony of the spheres, unquote. So there you are, here in the American colony in the colonies, 1797. Well, actually in the United States by that time. I'm gonna give you just one sample of what, uh, how, how this um, survived in some of the great composers of the 20th century, and this is Jan Sibelius, the great Finnish composer. He harked back to St. Clement when he wrote that, quote, the essence of man's being is his striving after God. It, the composition of music, is brought to life by means of the logos, the divine in art. That is the only thing that has significance, unquote. 
now that we've arrived in the 20th century, brace yourself for the bad news. What went wrong? Well, as um, one of the most popular composers in the United States today, John Adams, said that he had, quote, learned in college that tonality died somewhere around the time that Nietzsche's God died. And I believed it, unquote. Tonality, which are these tonal relationships in the octave that we've been talking about, and music composed according to them, that somehow died when Nietzsche's God died, which of course was in the 19th century, and he believed it. So what kind of music would he write if he, he believed that? Not harmonious music, I can guarantee you. So we're dealing with uh, two very concep different conceptions of the world. And of course, this affected far more than music. It, it affected all the arts, and of course, it affected philosophy too, right? Because Nietzsche was a philosopher of sorts. <laughs> now, <clears throat> have any of you ever seen a film by Igmar Bergman? Yeah, some of you have. Well, this Scandinavian director had this to say about his conception of the world. Quote, you were born without purpose, you live without meaning, when you die, you are extinguished. Unquote. Well, happy music? <laughs> happy films? No, no. I, in my, whenever I talk about uh, 20th century art, I use this statement by Bergman and I contrast it with the works of the French novelist Francois Mauriac, great 20th century French novelist, in this way. Bergman's works reflect the absence of a God who isn't there. He isn't there because he doesn't exist. So the absence of a God who isn't there. Moriac's novels reflect the absence of a God who is there. So his novels are filled with irony because people wander around within them in a state of unhappiness and, and conflict because they don't know God is there, but he's always looming in the background of the Moriac novel. So it's the absence of the God who is there. And these really, I think, help characterize the two kinds of art that we find in the 20th century. So, tonality died around the time that Nietzsche's God died. So, Logos dies. Logos is Christ, the new song, right? He dies. What happens when he's not there? Chaos. What? Chaos. Chaos. There's no transcendent to make perceptible. So what is left as the goal of your art or of your music if it is not in its highest expression to make that transcendent perceptible and certainly doing so in part by reflecting that logos, that order in creation as a reflection of its creator. If that's not there, what, the, what, what is your music? What are you doing? What's it for? 
Based upon this changed, radically changed understanding of reality, music then begins the process of disintegration. And the Dr. Kevorkian figure that I mentioned to you, Arnold Schoenberg, was indeed a great German composer who wrote some magnificent tonal works before he decided that tonality died, that we had run out of tonal music the way we would run out of, say, coal. Oh, that's it. Nothing left in this octave. We better come up with something else. So he created a new set of rules that had nothing to do with nature, with the order of nature. They were entirely arbitrary. This was called serial music or dedicophony. It's called 12-tone music. I don't think you want me to go over the technical uh, understanding of this, do you? No. Okay, because you're going to have to hear it, so brace yourself. But nonetheless, I'll tell you this, that the objective was to remove any uh, audible overtone relationships in music so you couldn't tell harmonically what was going on. There was no harmonic anchor for your ear to fasten upon so you could tell where the music was going or where it had come from, whether it was in conflict and how it would be resolved harmoniously. That's, all, that's gone. That harmony, the harmony's gone. Well, if there's no harmony of the spheres, you're not going to have harmony in your music, are you? And that's what happened. Um, Schoenberg. So this, this, you know, this sets in, in train music's self-destruction. Music becomes simply an arbitrary construct of man, a convention, because you've demoted the metaphysical status of nature. Nature is out. Everything's convention. Schoenberg was irritated that, quote, tonality does not serve, but must be served, unquote. In other words, yes, just as Pythagoras discovered, you, you discover tonality and you serve it in a way. And this irritated Schoenberg. He didn't want to serve. He, he, he was the non-serviam of 20th century music. I will not serve. I will create this artificial construct called dedicophony. And by the way, we will immerse modern man in this atonal music to such an extent that after a sufficient immersion in it, uh, he will hear discords as concords. See, if the difference between the two is artificial, well, can't you just habituate people to discords because then they'll soon hear them as concords? The preposterousness of this project was based upon this. So he writes, the emancipation of dissonance is at present accomplished and 12-tone music in the future will no longer be rejected because of discords. Quote, I am conscious of having removed all traces of a past aesthetic. So all those centuries of what we understood as beauty and music, that's, he removed that. In fact, he declared himself, quote, cured of the delusion that the artist's aim is to create beauty. Cured of the delusion that the artist's aim is to create beauty, unquote. <laughs> 
huh. Well, ugliness is sort of the aesthetic analog to evil. So what, what exactly is the artist doing here? You know, when you remove tonality as the uh, key structure of music, you lose harmony, uh, you, you, you lose melody and even uh, rhythm. As I've said to people who get very upset with me when I say this, it's like without tonality in music, uh, it's like making wine without grapes. You know, you can, you can have your pickers, you can have your, uh, uh, your vats, uh, you can have your barrels in which to age it, and you can have the bottles. But if you didn't start with grapes, there's not going to be any wine there. And if you dismiss, in fact, systematically avoid tonality, you can write what you call music, but what comes out at the end won't be discernible at it. Okay, Andy, are you ready, sir? You're now going to hear a piece called Erwartung from Schoenberg. And it's a vocal piece, and we're going to take two cuts from it. Go ahead, Andy. Roger, what do you think? Can you sing that? Second cut. Okay. You have the idea? Actually, Erwartung was a fairly early piece by Schoenberg, and he's, he's writing here about a woman who's undergoing kind of an internal disintegration. She thinks she's murdered her lover, or she may have dreamt it, and so she's going mad. So this kind of music, in a way, this highly expressionist music matches the text. But the fact is, he started writing music like this for everything. How many of you have seen Picasso's um, Guernica? painting. You know what I mean? Supposed to sh demonstrate the horrors of the German bombing during the Spanish Civil War of this town, Guernica, and you see this screaming horse and disfigured people, <clears throat> and you go, well, okay, I get it. Uh, they're disfigured because they've been bombed, and there's an outcry against this. Got it. But then I remember being in a museum many years later, seeing a Picasso of a, of, a, of a young girl eating an ice cream cone. And guess what? The same thing had happened to her that had happened to the people at Guernica. And no one had bombed the ice cream parlor. So what was going on here? What was going on here was the destruction of form. And the kind of sounds you hear there in this fairly early Schoenberg then become standard they're no longer uh, illustrating the uh, dis disintegration of this woman, uh, but the, the larger disintegration of everything. However, he had a very strict system, he had a huge influence, but some of his followers said, 
Well, first of all, we should systematize everything. Ever hear of Pierre, Pierre Boulez? Well, you don't need to now. But in 1952, he said, every musician who has not felt, we do not say understood, but felt the necessity of the serial language is, all capital letters, useless. You had some sense of the tyranny that was imposed by this school? Belez says, once the past has been got out of the way, one need only think of oneself. How's that for an artistic credo? Other composers who followed said, well, if you're going to emancipate dissonance, why control it? So Edgar Varese writes a piece. He said he was searching for the bomb that would explode the musical world and allow all sounds to come rushing in through the resulting breach, unquote. The, the New York music critic who heard the piece, Hyperprism, said it sounded like a catastrophe in a boiler factory. <laughs> now, I don't have that clip for you, but go ahead, Andy, play the, uh, the Verez. But, but, but still, um, Varez nonetheless had a score. You know, exactly when the boiler factory was supposed to explode. <laughs> and like, John Cage came, followed and said, well, why, why have that? You, you just leave everything up to pure chance, and that's music. So he would take uh, tape recordings scissors, clip them, uh, rustle them around in a basket, and, and then uh, splice them back together and whatever played was music, you see. Or in one concert, he took a uh, grand piano up in a helicopter at a football stadium and then released it. And when the piano smashed, uh, that was the music. You see, you get the point? This now then uh, produces anything that you care to call music uh, will be music. So we are now going to treat you to Karl Heinz Stockhausen, a short clip from his composition called Seven Days. Go, Andy. Okay, who here has indigestion from that <laughs> Italian food? But you get the point. You see what I mean? All right, we then move to the recovery, to the revolt against this. 
carried out by some, at first, very courageous composers who said, I'm returning to tonality, I'm returning to the traditions, the great traditions of Western classical music. And why am I doing it? Well, in terms of my friend George Rockberg, it was because his teenage son died. And he, he said, quote, I could not continue writing so-called serial music. It was finished, hollow, meaningless. It made it virtually impossible to express serenity, tranquility, wit, energy, unquote. So he then writes his third string quartet, which scandalizes the modern music world because he returns to tonality and says that the pursuit of art is a spiritual journey toward the transcendence of art and the artist's ego. So we're going to listen to actually a string transcription of part of his third string quartet so you can hear what the recovery, after, you, after what you just heard, you can hear a little snippet of what the recovery sounded like from George Rockburg. Go ahead, Andy. This, this caused a scandal. His wife, Jean, who also became a friend of mine, a, another composer, confronted her and said, Jean, why is George writing beautiful music? That's already been done. <laughs> the arrogance, the condescension. Now, remember, I mentioned to you John Adams, who accepted what he had been taught in college, that tonality died when uh, Nietzsche's God died, and he believed it. He came to reject that belief and that teaching, and he said, he found, like Pythagoras, that tone, I'm quoting him, that tonality was not just a stylistic phenomenon that came and went, but that it really is a natural acoustic phenomenon. And he wrote this symphony called Harmone Lyrae, the, the theory of harmony, which is ironic because that's what Schoenberg called his giant work at the time he was making his change to the serial music. And Adam says about this work, there is a sense of using key as a structural and psychological tool in building my work. Now, listen to this. The other shade of meaning in the title has to do with harmony in the larger sense, in the sense of spiritual and psychological harmony. He explains it explicitly in terms of spiritual health and sickness. He says, quote, the entire second movement is a musical scenario about impotence and spiritual sickness. It has to do with an existence without grace, 
And then, in the third movement, grace appears for no reason at all. That's the way grace is, the unmerited bestowal of blessing on man. The whole piece is a kind of allegory about that quest for grace, unquote. So now we're just going to hear a little clip about what that arrival of grace sounds like. I want to emphasize that the loss of tonality reflected a spiritual loss and the recovery of tonality reflected a spiritual recovery. As my friend, the late Steve Albert said to me, it is a matter of trying to find beauty in art again, despite what Schoenberg said. For art is about our desire for spiritual connection. Now, in the remaining time, I want you to hear some more of what this sounds like, particularly the recovery of gorgeous melody. Melody is back. We're going to do two quick uh, cuts from a contemporary, contemporary American composer, Ken Fuchs, up in Connecticut, He's younger than I, so you could, he's a very young man. <laughs> and this is a piece of his called Eventide. You hear that extraordinarily long-lined melody, that gorgeous line in the English uh, horn or the cor anglais? The next one is from his Canticle to the Sun, Concerto for French Horn and Orchestra, to play that clip.
gorgeous melody, harmonies. Now we're going to switch here to uh, some choral music from my friend Morton Lauritsen, who is the single most popular American choral composer in the United States today. You're going to hear a short clip of his Ave Maria. When I first interviewed Morton, by the way, all the, this is all in my book. You understand tonight's a giant advertisement for the book. <laughs> Young Matthew's back there with the books. Um, we, I, so I'm, I, I had heard, I listened to his Ave Maria and also the Lux Eterna, which you'll hear a short clip of. And uh, Morton, uh, he's not a Catholic, and he could sense this kind of little dis and discomfort in my voice talking about his Ave Maria, so he just said it. Ah, you don't have to be a Catholic to be in love with Mary. And you'll hear that love now. Now, uh, Martin, uh, here he's talking about another wonderful piece, O Magnum Mysterium. He said, in, quote, in composing music to these inspirational words about Christ's birth and the veneration of the Virgin Mary, I sought to impart a transforming spiritual experience within what I call a quiet song of profound inner joy. I wanted this piece to resonate immediately and deeply into the core of the listener, to illumine through sound, unquote. Does that recapture that original mission of music in such a beautiful way? We're going to hear a short clip from his Lux Eterna. This is a choral piece. Uh, he wrote as his mother was dying. And this is the most frequently performed piece by choral groups who go up to the 9-11 site in New York.
The last choral clip is from a Swiss composer, Carl Ruti, who was denigrated for writing tonal music as a young man. He wrote, I, I contacted him, I actually visited his home in Switzerland. Uh, he wrote a, a glorious Misa Angelorum that led me to first contact him. Recently, he wrote a Requiem, uh, which I, could, I, I think is a masterpiece. And you're just going to hear a little bit of the Sanctus from it. The last clip is from my friend John Kinsella. He's an 83-year-old Irish composer in Dublin. Uh, he recently completed his 11th symphony. I want you to hear some orchestral music. It's unfair to play a short clip because you can't see what led up to it or where it's going, but at least this will give you some idea. Um, and if any of you might have nodded off, this will wake you up. This is from John Kinsella's Symphony Number no. 3.
just a hint of the magnificence in this man's glorious symphonic works. But you get the idea just from those little snippets of what's come back, the magnitude of this recovery, that we're in the middle of a renaissance. And this is tremendous good news to the extent to which the arts are a harbinger of what's to come. This is good news indeed. I close with a statement from Sir John Taverner, who recently died. He, like John Kinsella, like Adams, they all wrote this serial, ugly music. All of them underwent an experience that changed them and brought them back to beauty and tonality. Here's the way John Taverner expressed himself. And every quote, in everything I do, I aspire to the sacred. Music is a form of prayer, a mystery. He says he wishes to express, again I'm quoting, the importance of immaterial realism or transcendent beauty. His goal, he said, was to recover, quote, one simple memory from which all art derives. The constant memory of the paradise from which we have fallen leads us to the paradise which was promised to the repentant thief. The gentleness of our sleepy recollections promises something else. That which was once perceived as in a glass darkly, we shall see face to face, unquote. We shall hear it also. And in the music about which I have written, we have previews of that new song. Thank you very much. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Mr. Riley. I, I can't help but imagine what Pythagoras would think, the man who was filled with so much wonder at the discovery of the logos, to know that there were humans out there that were um, crazy enough to believe that that logos became flesh. Would he be able to breathe if he was told that truth? Right. It's incredible. It makes me think of that, that comment you made about not wanting to serve tonality makes me think of, there's this paragraph in, in the Catechism 341, the beauty of the universe, the order and harmony of the created world results from the diversity of beings and from the relationship which exists among them. Man discovers them progressively as the laws of nature. They call forth the admiration of scholars. The beauty of creation reflects the infinite beauty of the creator and ought to inspire the respect and submission of man's intellect and will. Thinking of uh, Anthony Esselin recently gave a uh, speech over at Hillsdale College where he challenged those who were graduating, said, don't go out and change the world. Go out, understand the world, and be changed by it to develop a sense of reverence for reality, all right?
there's so many resources we want to recommend real uh, quickly here. There were uh, two articles posted on the events page for uh, this talk for the viewers online. Also, it's on the live broadcasting studio page. Uh, just want to highlight one. It's the music of the spheres or the metaphysics of music. It's an article there by uh, Mr. Riley. Um, also, Cutterback gave a talk. We don't have it on CD, but it's on the online library. Music and the Soul, Restoring or Destroying the Inner Man. It's a perfect follow-up for this talk if you're interested in going further. And then we do have a couple in the back. There's uh, Professor Clayton, Lift Up Your Eyes, Understanding the Transcendentals, this idea of music bringing the transcendentals into sort of a manner that's perceptible by the senses. It'd be a great talk on the transcendentals. And then also we have multiple talks from Mr. Riley in the back, just highlighting one, the closing of the Muslim mind. It's a two-part series. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? Mr. Riley, in your talk, you seem to suggest that Arnold Schoenberg is where the source of the problem lay. How would you feel about, say, Igor Stravinsky? I'd feel quite the opposite. It's very interesting. I have an interview in the book with Robert Kraft. In fact, Robert Kraft was the conductor of the Schoenberg piece you heard. And he was uh, Stravinsky's closest friend and aide-de-camp. Stravinsky played with a couple of atonal works, but his works did not participate in this um, disaster. Uh, he held that uh, music was a spiritual communication, and uh, you can hear that in his best work. So I don't think Stravinsky was part of the problem. And as you know, Stravinsky introduced neoclassicism into 20th century music, which was a return to pre-romantic classical forms. And many of the works he wrote in that vein are, are very delightful and joyful. So that's, that's my answer to that. I was wondering the extent to which university <clears throat> um, students studying music in universities are being exposed to the recovery that you talk about, or whether they're, you know, being immersed in this decaphonic or dodecaphonic. Yes, well, I don't think, I'm afraid they're not immersed in anything. <laughs> I, I don't think there's, there's much there there. Um, but to the extent to which Serialism maintains a hold anywhere. It's in the American Academy. So there are some older professors who are still hanging on. There are a few, you know, avant-garde, younger professors and composers who don't seem to know that the train has left the station, that it's over, that basically they lost, that their grip is gone, and uh, that the tonality is it's back for good. And there's a flood of this great new music. The problem is uh, getting to hear it and bringing uh, other people's attention to it. And that's why I have labored for years 
seeking these people out, talking to them, writing about them, trying to bring attention uh, to these wonderful, wonderful works. John Kinsella, by the way, I wrote a new chapter in the book about his music, but I had prior to that written an article about him. I sent it to him and he sent me back a note saying, you have really shaken up the landscape of the Irish musical establishment. Moi? I, I did, I'm writing for Crisis Magazine, you know, this. How could, but, but you see how little attention is received kind of amplifies uh, the power of the attention they do receive. And that's why I've been kind of shocked at the gratitude uh, composers express to me for paying attention to what they do, whereas I'm the one, you know, humbling, approaching. They're the ones who have created these great works of beauty. So it's, yeah, there are some holdovers, but it's over. They lost. Peter? I was just wondering um, where, if anywhere geographically, is this, is this revival coming from? Where, oh, geographically? Yeah, a certain country. Or? Yeah, that's interesting. Curiously enough, in Europe, it's principally located in Great Britain. I was just there and spent half a day with Robin Walker, who's a, a wonderful English composer. He's 64, and he's only now having his, uh, his first CD dedicated to his orchestral works, which are stunning, stunningly good. And he, too, had gone through that transition from serialism to the return to tonality. But he's just getting that. But there are, there are, multi, there are many of such composers in Great Britain. Um, the composers here are where composers mostly are, which is the Near East and California, because that's, and maybe Chicago, because that's where the orchestras are, that's where the musical world is, uh, that's where Juilliard is, or they're in Baltimore. Jonathan Leshnoff still in his 30s, wonderful. Uh, he's a, you know, because Peabody is there. So they're, they're, they're where, the mu where music is made. Is there a similar recovery taking place in popular music? Well, my kids still are singing the Beatles, so I don't know what's... Uh, I have to tell you a wonderful story about my oldest son when he was a young kid in grade school, I guess it will date the story because he was going to see, you know, a Star Wars movie. I know there's been one in the last year or two, but this is years ago. And the father of his friend who was driving the car was playing this hard metallic rock or something, and it was just the whole time going to and coming from the, the movie. And my son was in a very agitated state when he, he got home. And I said, well, what's wrong, Michael? He said, oh, there's music. He played this music. It's just terrible. I said, well, what was wrong with it? He said, it is irritating to the mind. And I went, yes. <laughs> he got it. We're doing something right. And that's the problem. It's irritating to the mind as is most modern liturgical music. Just, just, yeah, drop that one aside. 
So it amazes me that I, I just, when my kids aren't playing classical music, they, um, they are listening to the same music as I did when I was in high school. That's the music they like. It's very, a very interesting phenomenon. Renaissance in music, um, Professor Clayton has talked about a thus far clumsy renaissance in, in architecture. I believe there's been a renaissance in the beauty of oriental carpets, of all things. Um, so in the context of John Paul II's letter to the artists, and I believe there have been others in your comment about liturgical music, could you address the, the historic leadership of the church and perhaps the current lack of leadership of the church and this renaissance? Yeah, the, the relationship is zero between the church and this renaissance. In fact, uh, as some of you might be surprised to learn, I'm a conservative. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say there's absolutely no relationship between the so-called conservative movement and this renaissance. These people are out there just doing it as best they can on their own because, to tell you the truth, most people in the conservative movement are culturally illiterate. They don't even know what's happening. I mean, you have Dana Joya, you have a couple of remarkable, Deal Hudson, remarkable people like that, who are, who are very culturally literate. But to a large extent, it's not. I remember going up to New York to meet Monsignor Clark in the Archdiocese of New York to discuss a music prize in the commissioning of new liturgical music. So we had a wonderful lunch and afternoon together discussing how this might be done. And I suggested what size the prize might be for the composition of a new mass or something. And of course, his heart was in the right place, but nothing ever happened. One of the very uh, wonderful masses in the 20th century was written by, I think, a fellow named Bartow. I have to go back and check the name. It's magnificent. And then he went silent. He never composed anything else. Why? Because what was the point? No one would play it, wouldn't be used. And so there's been no institutional support from the church for this kind of thing. When it was the mother of it, when the church was the mother of Western culture, when it preserved it, when it fostered it, when it commissioned it. So that's a very sad um, legacy of... Um, post-Vatican II, uh, where we're hearing guitars and bongo drums instead of what we could, what, what's there, what people are willing to write. What, I mean, Morton Lauritsen could only imagine the mass he would write. So, so and, and there are some wonderful uh, new masses being written, but will they be performed? That's the problem. So the church is... Uh, lost its vocation for beauty. Certainly John, St. John Paul II, the great, he, he knew that. And certainly uh, Pope Benedict understands it. I could read you things that he says about liturgical music uh, that he wrote when, as Cardinal Ratzinger that would bring tears to your eyes. Of course, he's a man who would relax by playing Beethoven sonatas because he's a musician. Uh, so he understands, uh, I don't know 
the extent to which the current pope would understand this. I, I mean, it's, I, I'm not, I simply don't know. But institutionally, the church has not stepped up to the plate. And that's very sad because it should be having that restorative influence on our culture. Instead of participating in its degradation, which is so often the case in the liturgical pablum that is used today. Here I was giving an upbeat talk and Peter had to ask me this question. <laughs> so I'm back in form, I'm back to my usual. I got my degree in music therapy in the 70s. Uh, have music therapists now realized more the need to order the soul with only beautiful music, have you noticed? I think so. And I think that's acknowledged for in public spaces. Well, I think you may have heard certain cities will have speakers in various parts of the city, particularly that are experiencing problems. And they'll pipe in some Mozart. And it makes the undesirable element so uncomfortable that they leave. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> So remember, when you sin, you are without music. So if you are with music, uh, you'll shape up. I have sung Loritzen. I've also met him. I've also sung John Rutter and met him. If you are familiar with John Rutter, would you comment on him? Uh, beautiful. He has written some of the really beautiful uh, choral works and a cappella works of recent decades. Yeah, John Rutter is kind of an English Morton Lauritsen and is highly, highly regarded and extremely popular. So there are no excuses, really, for you not to buy the book. There are still copies with my son, Matthew. Thank you so Thank much, you Mr. Very much. Riley. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.